0: Yes guys, what's good? you tuned into Mango Masala, Pie Pi Radio South Asian show. My name's Gerns and I'm here with Jared Jeremiah. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. Uh, it's, it's evening for me. I'm in uh, Australia. What's in Australia?
0: You know what? I have to say that like, before this um, interview, I was like sitting thinking, oh yeah, it's going to have like quite a strong Australian accent, but I actually don't think yours comes across that really? Yeah,
1: I've, I've been told that quite a lot. Like, I feel like mine's quite a blend. So I honestly imitate the British accent quite a bit <laughs> just for, just for jokes. You so know, I was, I was born in Perth, I still live in Perth, Western in Australia. I studied, uh, music, like as a kid, I studied percussion, like drums, um, classical music. I'm a bit of a music nerd and yeah, just growing up, I was always like around like family music and, uh, playing the drums and playing and like different bands and this and that. And then in high school I studied percussion and then I kinda wanted to take it a bit more, so I did it in university as well. Um it was weird though, it was like, very classical, so it was like me studying Beethoven by day and then in the night I was like producing some weird like beats and like like rap sometimes. It was like very interesting. Anyway, I traveled quite a bit, um, the past year or so, I went to London actually. Um UK for the first time. It was really good.
0: So what was it then that made you decide to want to get into making music with you on vocals then
1: yeah I guess it was kind of um I didn't do a decision it was actually kind of out of like that no one else wanted to do it for me like I originally wanted to produce and have people sing on my beats and, and producing and everything like that but I was just really bad at it so I was like all right I'll just sing myself and see how I can just do it myself and eventually I like kind of learned purely just by um the method that no one else wanted to sing my songs so I just sang my own songs wrote my own stuff and I eventually learned how to sing a bit better and like kind of do some cool stuff with my vocals and write to my own vocals as well um so yeah it was it was purely just like me like doing music first and like writing and then kind of adding my vocals
0: on later on and I suppose as well like it's sort of a bit of a bonus because I can imagine for producers maybe sometimes they have a very clear idea of how they would want vocals to sound on a track. Whereas when it's you yourself that's providing them, obviously you know what you want and you can tailor that. Yeah. Exactly.
1: And I guess what's like the thing, especially like coming from a production background, it's like, especially if I work with other producers, it's so easy for me to communicate. I'm like, okay, turn the compression down, do something here. Um, compared to sometimes artists who don't come from a production background. And it's like, tough for to get the vision specifically across
0: so when you decided that you wanted to pursue music either as a producer or as like an artist in your own right who were the main influences that you had in mind
1: or was it just i want to create something completely different i think i had a period where i was really like when i started making music when i had some really interesting influences like i started probably creating and producing around six years ago and at that time I was really listening to like San holo and like Lewis the child and all this like electronic music, almost even like Skrillex and stuff. So those are my big influences at that time. i um, like very electronic future bass kind of flume kind of almost. Yeah. And yeah, kind of like delved into the whole like Tom um, London jazz scene, kind of soul pop, whatever it is a bit later on, maybe like a couple years ago, like Jacob Collier, all the kind of that which is uh they the influences that might not be super present in that music but it's i really like i don't know i guess i listen to them a lot and they influence my writing style
0: yeah no it's interesting because i think the tall tom miss jacob collier i think from this later single definitely is present but when you were saying like skrillex and electronic yeah, music i definitely wouldn't have exactly
1: yeah it's interesting yeah yeah i guess that's why like also when i produce for other artists it's like i kind of can push some more synths or whatever the, the sound design and stuff like that is because I just like really int- was really interested in at the time. I was surrounded by it.
0: Tell us about this latest single then London in June. How did it end up coming about?
1: It was actually me writing it in probably like around June when I was in Perth. Um, and it, it was really this cause I saw all of my friends and all the people around me just in London or in Europe kind of enjoying themselves kind of like acting like I don't know, like acting like you have no problems and just be like, ah. and so it's like a very fantasy world. I kind of like saw that, and I was like, oh, I just want to make something really like tr- not not trendy, but like super just like light, I guess, a bit more light and not too deep, but also like kind of just really like like bop, bop song. And my main thing was just getting someone from London on it. I just, I just really wanted to like make a song called London and June with a London artist on it. That was generally all I had. And yeah, there was an artist called Lily Agnes, which at the time, I think I discovered her through another artist she like collaborated with. And she, man, her voice was just amazing, like amazing. And so I, was, I just reached out and, and I, I, I told her I'm coming to London. So let's, let's record it. And so I recorded it in London. I recorded it and within like three weeks, I released it because I was like, I want to get it out. So I've got to mix the master just a quick turnaround around and release it. And
0: yeah. Nice. So you said that you came up with the whole concept of it when you were still in Australia mm-hmm. at that point, were you actually going to be in London nah. or did you decide to go afterwards? I don't know.
1: Like I kind of wanted to, but I didn't really have any plans to do it. Um, so I didn't actually have any proper like set in certain plans, um, but I knew I wanted to go somewhere for the summer or, or like the kind of Winter holidays of Australia, so it was summer in London. Because I, I was generally I get really bad fomo To be honest, it's pretty bad. Um, so I <laughs> see anybody else doing. i like, okay, I'm I'm going
0: for sure. And I'm presuming that's how the um, music video ended up coming out as well, because it just looks like it's you having like a proper touristy. It's day literally out. that's
1: that's all I just wanted to do. I just wanted to like vlog and like make a music video out of that and just be the biggest, absolute fool of a tourist. I wanted to, I was going places and were like the biggest tourists. I wanted to get on. I was like buying all the caps and everything. And like, uh, cause I've never been to the UK. It was my first time. And like, I feel it's so It's So like, it's almost like movie-esque cause like, I feel like growing up, uh, like we were used to see, we used to do puzzles and it used to have like the big Ben on it or used to have the the, 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 double decked buses on it. Like I'd see them growing up. I, I'd have toys, which are just London toys. So seeing that in real life i was like a little little fanboy basically
0: so this is basically a dream come true then pretty much
1: (laughs) i just want to be like a loose menace running around london
0: and like you said as well it must have been really cool to obviously have a london-based artist on the track with you as well
1: yeah really after going there really seeing how interesting the scene is it's like it's very diverse you have so many different genres really like popping out of there and there's all like these different scenes which are pretty tight but also like they're really like flowering and like three really growing. Which is cool. Out of
0: curiosity, how does that compare to Perth, especially as a South Asian?
1: I feel like especially in the Australian scene, I'm kinda of delving towards more the pop side right now. Um just because like I feel like it's not fully R and B. It's it's pop with R and B influences of course. Um I'm also pop and I think like, I think pop is pretty respected or like, or it's as any, especially upcoming pop as well in London. It's, it's pretty common and respected. Um, but I don't know. I think, I think Australia is really on the currently like, just supporting hip hop and R&B. Like I feel like hip hop is a big thing right now in Australia and like the whole kind of drill scene or what, what not is having at the moment. So I, I think it's, it's kind of hard, like, Especially, like, a South Asian, like, I feel like most pop artists, they're... I I don't don't know many South Asian pop artists. They're they're more alternative.
0: And what's it like as well, like you said, obviously, coming from Australia, where there's not necessarily that much... Not that much inspiration in terms of South Asian artists to look up to that are doing the same thing as you. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I
1: feel like recently, I've only, like, kind of tapped into the South Asian side. It's not, like... Highlighted in Australia, basically. like there's, it's only just recently like starting to burst, but it's really not highlighted at all. I feel, um, and you have lots of communities and different groups getting highlighted, but I think South Asian specifically is very um looked over. Yeah, and I, but I feel like now I'm more excited to be like, yeah, I'm just, like South Asian, and, like kind of being proud of it because I feel like growing up was was a bit tough because growing up in like schools and communities was mainly just like white and you don't see other people who are like similar to you, but I think like re- like recently and now it's, it's cool to see that like there's, there's small little communities growing in, in Australia specifically around creative industries, like around creative and around South Asians. Um, but I think it's like still so, so new. like there's, there's barely anything It's barely, um, compared to what other, other communities have in Australia. I feel like most people who are South, asian i guess they don't really like tell people they're south asian you just kind of figure it out like no one openly says yeah i'm south asian you know you're like hold up you kind of look oh you look your surname kind of like that's that's how it, that's how it always comes across.
0: i mean i can maybe imagine that in australia it's maybe like that because it's such a new massive country but the what yeah and that the balls of the population isn't that big compared to the landmass whereas the UK is this kind of like it's a very small island but it's very like more dense yeah so I feel like it's not that like there is very much like those different communities exist yeah so what is next for you then obviously you've released London in June that came out is it October October, yeah nah, so I'm presuming that maybe that's it for you for
1: 2023 or nah it's not actually um, really? it's not, so I surprisingly actually have a song coming out next week, um, with another artist from Melbourne. Um, and it's a really, really cool indie pop kind of song Been working on it for a while. Um, and yeah, like I just wanted to get this one out before the end of the year. And so I've been working so hard. i been just getting really stressed out because I've been getting my releases confused, like while I'm working in London legit. I'm also working on this one. So that one's exciting. It's called chocolate comes out next Thursday, but, uh, yeah, it's with a girl called Holly Heavey and yeah, it's really fun, fun tunes. And it's really delving into more my indie pop side, kind of stepping away from that kind of soul pop or whatever, but it's really pushing to that pop side. I mean, apart from that, just playing a couple more shows for 2023. Um, and then 2024, um, hopefully just playing more shows maybe doing like Uh, Some touring or whatnot, and maybe an EP at
0: the end of the year. No, that's nice. It sounds like you've got like at least a rough plan. It's better than yeah that. And then you have been like, yeah, I don't know. We'll see what happens. Like, sound like you've actually got yourself together. I don't know. I I sound like it, but (laughs) under the wraps, I don't know. Yeah, well, you're very good at selling it. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing um, chocolate and also. And the rest of new music that comes out in twenty twenty four, and for people that want to keep up to date with you and your music, where's the best place for them to find you?
1: uh You can find me on Spotify. It's just Jared Jeremiah, so J A R R O D Jeremiah. Um, or you can just search on Instagram. Yeah.
0: Yes, guys. What's good? You tuned into Mango Masala Pie Radio South Asian Show. My name's Gerns, I'm here with Halima.
1: Hey
2: everyone.
0: And we are recording this on Wednesday, the 15th of November, at around 20 past eight. So, for those of you that are quick, you'll realise that the vote on whether or not the UK should support a ceasefire in regards to the Israel Palestine quote unquote conflict, the results of that have just come through. Getting right into it. Um, just come through. Yeah. Breaking news and obviously this is a couple of days after, so I'm sure you will know that the results came back not in favour of supporting a ceasefire. I think it was
2: 293 versus 125.
0: Yeah, so the official stats were 125 MPs for a ceasefire, including 56 Labour MPs who went against Keir Starmer and his ask that they abstain from the vote. 293 MPs against a ceasefire and then 232 MPs abstaining the main thing (laughs) that I think a lot of people are kind of not shocked by necessarily but it's quite a significant moment is that the majority of Labour MPs um chose to go with Keir Starmer leader of Labour's instructions in abstaining from opting for a ceasefire
2: in what like on what basis for those of you who are at home and, and are and are wondering, like how can anyone vote against a ceasefire in this situation? The la- the kind of official line they're giving is that oh well, um, Israel has a continued right to defend itself. A lot of arguments point to the hostages that are still under uh, Hamas kind of control. Even though Hamas long ago, like literally in the first or second week of this kind of war, had decided, had agreed to basically release the hostages if Israel had called for a ceasefire. So it's kind of like a inane argument against a ceasefire anyway. But that's the kind of official line. But from a humanitarian perspective, it's just inexcusable. Like, I think, I think, I think firstly, the fact that a ceasefire is something that is of political interest, i.e. something that can be voted for or against by people literally thousands of miles away and entire realities removed from the kind of, this genocide in the first place is insane to me. Why are MPs in the UK who have absolutely no skin in the game or the majority of which have no skin in the game in terms of family there or whatever, why are they the ones who get to decide whether we're going to go ahead with the ceasefire or not? Like, why is that something to be voted on? Firstly. Secondly, how can there be any humanitarian basis on which to argue against a ceasefire like Keir Starmer I've been so disappointed with his kind of handling of this issue anyway I mean I've made it very clear I'm not a fan of Keir Starmer from the beginning I do not think he should have been made leader of the Labour Party um I have also spoken as a Muslim about how how I will not be voting how I myself have divested from the Labour vote but this is a complete kick in the teeth
0: I think as well to go as far as to say that any shadow ministers who right. vote vote in favour of the ceasefire right. would lose their jobs.
2: How is that a democracy?
0: Yeah, I don't understand That's that that's that
2: is that not like fascism? Like like this isn't I'm not saying it is, but is that that is that not a contemplation of, like, is that not fascism, guys? Where, like, yeah. the whole point of a democracy is that MPs should be allowed to exercise their own voice and vote based on the consensus of their constituents. Yeah, That's literally what an MP is paid taxpayer money to do. Obviously, right? I
0: understand the idea of, like, keeping party consensus, and it makes sense if you vote in blocks, etc. But I don't think that should be a necessity or an obligation. It
2: shouldn't, once again, especially in the context of the fact that we're supposed to be a democracy, right? Like if an MP's constituents are overwhelmingly... In favor of a ceasefire, if they're, and I've seen literally so many people write into their MPs personally to ask for a ceasefire. If that's what the public consensus is, are the politicians not there to serve us? Are the politicians not there to ventriloquize our political consensus, not their own? Mm. That's firstly, but to have like a supreme, <laughs> like an executive decision and an executive instruction from keir starmer regardless of what the constituents and the people on the ground are saying that's not very democratic at all it's it's, it's entirely like directly opposed to democracy to so order your party members you can't who, who you, you as as a as a leader of a party you don't have the right to do that or you shouldn't have the right to do that
0: I'm- john mcdonald he tweeted in the earliest hours of this morning stating that he was going to vote in favor of a ceasefire i think he spoke about in these situations it is best to go with your own conscience and i think with that in mind i don't want to have to say this but i think we'll see in years to come that when people look back and see how did this much atrocity end up happening Mm -hmm. those people those names who voted in favor of not opting for a ceasefire that's on you now yeah
2: 100%. No 100%. I think oftentimes in like politics when there are different consensuses and there's votes on some things like okay fine like the difference between a yes and a no might not be that grand in this instance when when we're talking in the context of an actual genocide when the death toll is well over 11,000 people just in the last month. Like Carlos says it becomes a question of your conscience. It becomes a question of human humanity. You know I understand in some areas of politics you kind of have to vote in favour of political advantage, but in this situation it should just be a vote on humanity and and, and in that regard I don't understand how those who voted against the ceasefire can live with themselves. Genuinely, I I, the way that I see it is that the blood of the Gazans that will now die henceforth is on their hands. You become a member of the parliament to represent the public, to, to represent the, the kind of the sentiments and the consensus of the public and when there's a million people who are marching in the streets of London saying that they want a ceasefire saying that they want an end to the occupation and that is not accurately and adequately reflected by our government officials then you're not doing your job you are not serving your people you are acting in political interest and I don't understand how you can justify that in the face of such a large atrocity yeah it's just very careerist like not for me personally no career is worth having to to, to put myself on the wrong side of history in, in in such a grave way
0: yeah and i think some people would pose the argument that well what was the point of this anyway um a bunch of people who were thousands of miles away from where this is actually happening voting on whether or not there's going to be a ceasefire when realistically they themselves don't have any control over that but the point is first of all obviously the UK stance on this does have a big impact because because we supply so much of the weaponry to Israel as well like that's one of the things that the UK is actually a lot of UK
2: based companies are directly benefiting Mm. from the genocide actually and it is so twisted but that's the reality of the matter
0: but aside from that as well I think even if that wasn't the case just the idea that you support these, this ongoing violence this this and it's 100%. not unprecedented because we've seen the last month over ten thousand people lost their lives and that was this was all from a retaliation as well this wasn't from the initial act out from hamas which is obviously how this most recent series of events has kick-started but those ten thousand lives were purely from a choice do you know what i mean mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you made a choice to yes you want to defend yourself but you also want to go and therefore annihilate a number of people, displace a number I think, of people yeah, a number I, yeah, of people. Half and kids.
2: Yeah. I think I think when we see the scale of damage now, the argument of defence becomes very redundant. Not not just when you see the scale of, of damage, but also when you actually listen to what a number of states people are saying. They, a number of state Israeli states people have come forward to say like, "We're gonna flatten Gaza." You know, we're gonna destroy the Gazans. Like, there's conversations going on right now with Israeli states people where they're basically urging Western countries to take on Gazan refugees. They don't want to rehome them. They don't want to rehabilitate them. Yeah. That's not in the israeli imagination and the israeli plan for gaza
0: And i think a lot of people will look at that and be like oh no but they want to just provide them with a safe place but it's like no this is ethnic cleansing hundred, like, I don't that's get literally it the it.
2: dictionary like, definition to displace them forever to and, and by the way like we know that palestinians do not have the right of return to, to send them away under the guise of safety is to sever their ties to their land forever you know, so to so kind of talk about defense now, as, as I say, is completely redundant. Nothing that we have seen in in the five weeks since 7th of October can be actually and in, in, in earnestly seen as a defense from Israel. It has been for the annihilation of, of, of Gaza and Gazans.
0: Well, continuing on the advice, advice. advice. Mm. well you know what halima i'm not really feeling it after we just <laughs> yeah about yeah that. guys we'll just put the we should have just
2: <laughs> put the well mm.
0: no we will put the jingle in over it don't you worry i suppose finding the somewhat positives in this this saturday we saw i know it's certainly the largest in the past five weeks but possibly in history pro-palestine yeah rally within the UK, disputed numbers, the police say three hundred thousand or say eight hundred (laughs) thousand. That was there's no
2: way that was three hundred thousand.
0: Guaranteed hundreds of thousands of people. Turning out again like Kalima said, voicing The want for a ceasefire, showing solidarity with the Palestinian people, which I've seen a number of reports saying that the Palestinian people are spurred on by seeing when they can the fact that the world is standing with them, essentially. Mm So it's important from that perspective. However, I want to talk about Coconut Lady.
2: Careful, the bet will get you. Well, you know what? It's Let, no, ridiculous, no, isn't no,
0: it? No, come on, we've lit like, ha, okay. you,
2: you guys, you've, you know which one I'm talking about. You know which particular case I'm talking about. The particular lady, there's Yeah, one. that's why
0: I said coconut lady. Yeah. Oh, it's, wait, you thought I was talking about Suella. Oh, no, I'm talking about, Her, oh, wow, you're talking okay, about the right, girl. You, the the need, to, you need to watch yourself. Yeah. I was talking about the lady holding the poster anyway. Oh, Coconut we'll, we'll Lady. Talk, okay. come a when later. you say that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, I'm talking about Coconut Lady. For those who don't know, one of the people at the protest in London this past week, she was holding up a sign that showed a coconut tree, and essentially the coconuts falling off it, a couple of whom were Rishi Sunak and Suella Braverman, obviously implying that they themselves are coconut, which is colloquial slang for um, brown people who basically don't act in the interests of their ethnic group, essentially. Racial and, traitors, yeah. basically essentially act in the interests of white supremacy for need of a better word it's a shame simran's not here because obviously we know how simran feels about the term coconut she's not a fan of being called a coconut for example cooking a certain way or for not necessarily engaging with asian music and that and we've had this discussion about like labeling people that without any good reason whatever but Whenever we've had that discussion, I've always kind of been of the mind that a lot of people who get called a coconut is not necessarily justified, but there are certain instances (laughs) in which people do act (laughs) like it, yeah. and even when they do, acting like a coconut, that is not hate crime in my opinion
2: how how honest to god on what basis so basically this woman this protester had this sign um and then the met police have basically tweeted it saying does anyone have any information on this woman we're basically trying to apprehend her and i've since heard that the woman has actually been
0: so they took her in for questioning in regards to a racially aggravated hate crime i believe um so they let her go but they still took her in for questioning, and she was cautioned for such.
2: Because, 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 uh, um, that like the founder of Muzmatch came forward, and he was like, um, "We're ready to pay all her like legal fees." Basically, I um, mean, from
0: the second that that tweet was put out, and there was it was a hit, a hit, a hit on her, basically. Yeah. like, and that's the thing as well—the fact that. I mean, obviously, we don't know who actually took the photo of her in the first place. It might have been one of her own acquaintances. She might have wanted it to be taken herself. But it kind of just shows the importance of, at these events, not incriminating either yourself or other people. You know what it is? Because anyone yeah, can go off on
2: it. That's, that's firstly, but I also think it is, like, grossly inappropriate For the Met Police, these are like the kind of the the custodians of or the supposed to be the custodians of law and order tweeting out a civilian's face. I understand in the instance where like maybe someone has criminalised themselves by shooting somebody, murdering somebody, i.e. they're a danger to society and to other people in those instances i understand why you might need to put someone's face on the internet and let everyone know hey this person is dangerous stay away from them let us know if you see them she is clearly a civilian like her crime is having a political opinion that differs to well i I don't know who made the law that it's a hate crime but she has there is
0: no set law. i'm (laughs) sure if you look up the definition of a hate crime Describing someone as a coconut... It shouldn't
2: be one. It shouldn't be one. It's ridiculous. Nevertheless, that's the line on which they've now criminalised her or have attempted to criminalise her. However, she is not dangerous. She's not a danger to society. So to put her picture out there for like everyone to see I think is grossly irresponsible knowing the backlash that she's going to get and I think in those instances like whoever the hell it is that's running the Met Police Twitter account really really needs to I think be undergo some kind of disciplinary action or they need to really kind of rework whatever their procedure is because the discretion that these officers are trusted to exercise when knowing who to put on the internet and who not to put on the internet is Mm -hmm. completely completely skewed. That's firstly. Secondly, on what basis is calling someone a coconut a hate crime?
0: This is the words hate crime. I think even when we ourselves, in our opinion, would call um, someone like Rishi Sunak or Sue Lubravan a coconut, we might, some of us more than others, hold hate for these <laughs> people. But I think when we call them a coconut, that's probably the lightest of like coconut, our a
2: hate of crime. Is not just about hating someone. Like I'm al- hate is a normal human emotion. I am allowed to hate my government who I deem are causing harm and 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 are hurting society. I'm allowed to hate that. However, I'm not inciting any violence onto them.
0: Right. So sorry if there's a, a bit of an abrupt change just now we've just gone and eaten some food but now we're back (laughs)
2: Um, keeping it real guys
0: i believe we were just finishing up talking about coconut lady aka the brown woman that was carrying the poster of swilla brotherman and rishi sunak depicting them as being coconuts and talking about why that's not really hate crime in our opinion that being said one thing that i did want to touch upon not only because i think that it's important to do so in order to maintain fairness and non-bias in the ongoing situation but also just from a moral perspective as well just to talk about some of the um signs that have seen at these protests and explaining why these signs might be deemed anti-semitic Then also this is kind of good to then tell people so that they know because i don't some of these i'm not sure some of these i feel are a bit like non-intentional and essentially they can be considered as being anti-Semitic. And if that is the case, then obviously it's good for these people to know that and then act accordingly moving forward. Um, yeah, I've seen a number of signs that um, certain people, whether they're Jewish, Zionist, both, whatever, have kind of called out and said, I'm not happy with this. And I, because of that, I've then gone and like, looked into it further and trying to understand exactly why there's an issue with it. And I think it is fair to say that a number of signs... Not necessarily a large amount, but a number of signs that have been at these sort of protests have depicted anti-Semitic tropes. That is to say, examples of anti-Semitism from the past um, where people have stereotyped Jewish people and made them out to be a certain thing. So one example of an anti-Semitic trope that I have seen depicted in some of these signs, which might not even be intentionally anti-Semitic, but might be conceived as one, is the demonization of Jewish people. Now, the example that I saw of this was of Netanyahu with devil's horns, which obviously when you look at that, it doesn't necessarily appear to be anti-Semitic because it's basically just implying that Netanyahu is the devil because in a lot of people's opinions, he's done a lot of evil things. That being said, it has been the case in the past that um, Jewish people have found themselves being basically considered demons, satanic beings... Um, depicted, depicted as, as that <laughs> um, particularly that kind of crooked horns type of thing which it was how it was in that poster that i saw in particular i don't know whether the person that made that poster was necessarily going along those lines but no. i think it's just even if you're not intending it i think it's, it's just better to just
2: be safe yeah rather, safe rather than sorry and just be a little bit sensitive yeah. to like I completely understand the motivation to want to depict someone like Netanyahu as a devil, but given the kind of historical contingency of the antisemitism trope of depicting Jewish people as devils, um, maybe a different method of condemning him would just be better just yeah. to kind of like not blur lines, not to cause any upset or offense to um, any Jewish people kind of like looking in. Obviously it's very important for the marches to be completely inclusive Anything that could be perceived as being, um, you know, potentially harmful to any group of people, I think it's, it's best. Just especially because there's so many other other ways and methods of depicting kind of disdain and condemnation. Yeah. Um, and kind of this kind of goes into what we were talking about a few weeks ago, where we were saying how anti-Semitism really is a, a problem in this world. And it really obscures like valid claims against anti-Semitism when you know, the Israeli war machine just calls everything anti-Semitism, but just, you know, this is our kind of like, us us imploring everyone to just be very mindful.
0: Yeah, like I'm not going to go into a mass list of all the anti-Semitic tropes that have existed over time. I think Just do your due diligence. Yeah, when you're if you're choosing to make a sign or making any type of comment on what's going on, maybe just go like literally. There is a Wikipedia article on anti-Semitic tropes. You can go and look at and be like, okay, even if I don't think this, what I'm saying could be construed as meaning this, and I should therefore be careful not only to save myself, but also not to cause Jewish people around the world feeling a certain type of way. Yeah, and
2: to not play into tropes as well.
0: Yeah. one other thing that I've seen on a certain number of signs that isn't necessarily a trope, but I think is something to be avoided, is the use of swastikas on signs. Now, I completely understand like the comparison of what's going on in Palestine right now yes. with containment of Jews in concentration camps comparing it with being an open-air prison the type of conditions that they're being subjected to that sort of thing like the mass mass killing of people etc that being said I think a lot of people out there know very well that the only reason why you're really using that swastika sign is because you know the people that are committing these crimes now are largely Jewish and you're kind of using that as like oh you're doing this when actually less than 100 years ago you were in a similar situation I don't think that necessarily appropriate there's no point in doing that and I think all you're going to do actually in, do, in doing that is actually disturb a lot of Jewish people who are going on these marches that they're already maybe feeling a bit tentative about and then the fact that they see some massive ass
2: swastika. It's also intellectually like a bit inconsistent as well kind of um, even though there's parallels to be made with every single genocide that has ever existed in history um, just because something is like Nazism doesn't it make it Nazism. Nazism is Nazism and that's its own thing, that's its own history, that's its own kind of politic Um, and what's going on in Israel is 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 not that it's it's, some, it's it's different even though we can draw those parallels it is different so to conflate one thing with the other and and I know in, in history and in politics we do this a lot to kind of like um bring certain thematic consistencies to the forefront but in this instance like it's just not it's not necessary we can say that Israel are a settler colonial state we can say that you know Israel have have enacted uh, on upon a genocide and an apartheid without having to bring nazism into it
0: we have seen that just like the coconut lady who was called off for a hate crime and one woman who was carrying a sign that basically crossed over the Star of David that's obviously on the Israel flag with a swastika, she is also being investigated. So I think as much as for the reasons we've just said, like for your own sake as well, it's like literally... Just avoid yeah. it,
2: just avoid it. Just say something else, call, call him a yeah. or something, I don't know. Well, I mean, I'm going
0: to have to bleed that out, but yeah.
2: <laughs> Just say something else.
0: Yeah. Right. Now we're moving on to actual coconut lady. What well, we thought we were talking about before. Some other mm. arguably positive news in our opinion. Zoella Braverman um, has been <laughs> she's, <sat>. out. <laughs> <laughs> she's out.
2: She's <laughs> out. Thank God she's out. But also we didn't... I was worried about kind of... Given that she was Pretty Patel's replacement... Who's going to be her replacement? And obviously, it's now James Cleverly. Cleverly. I don't actually know much about him, but I can um, really hazard a guess yeah. that he's probably not great
0: well it was literally within like a number of minutes hours whatever his first thing is james cleverly will stop the. that's votes.
2: it because well, they had a complete uh, cabinet reshuffle didn't they mm. and they basically came out on the tory kind of twitter account they came out with these like posters oh of gosh. the new ministers yeah. david cameron he's back fire. with a fire emoji <laughs> as though like these are love island contestants but they came out with these like kind of promotional posters yeah. and james cleverly his tagline was he will stop the boats or like stop the boats mm. or something like that and that's thought that been god. like your motto
0: for like the past three people in that position oh my
2: god yeah so really how much is is, is it's a bit like a pyrrhic vis- victory you know where it's like we won but at what cost you know like that simpsons meme where it's kind of like mo
0: throws barney out of the pub and then he like appears behind him again yeah so, like,
2: one literally about another, a- another one in literally but i mean to be fair i personally am very glad that she's gone like i had a very personal disdain against her i really really this is my personal opinion found her just completely insufferable completely insufferable like she just was I mean, we spoke about this literally Carlos and I, we had this exact conversation for last week's episode where we sat there and we were like, she's divisive. She's, you know, inflammatory. She's insightful. She's hateful. And then literally a few days later... Oh, look, look at that. <laughs> the literally, day that it aired. Yeah, the a- day that the episode aired. I was aired. literally
0: sat in the Pi Radio studio playing out the pre-record. Basically, we were just talking about how what Swell is say- saying is inevitably going to lead to some kind of violent outburst. And lo and behold, Saturday morning, Tommy Robinson and co decide to storm the Senate.
2: I mean, that whole thing just made no sense to me. Like, f- like. Why are they storming the thing that they were claiming to protect?
0: Well, you know it's especially interesting as well. I'm not one to necessarily like um, say anything about conspiracy theories or anything, but lots well, I know of, exactly yeah, what lots of say. sources. so that. Tommy Robinson get into a carstry afterwards and leave and everyone else was left. They'd be like, "Wait, what do we do now?
2: Does, I also yeah. have heard the conspiracy theory that um Suela Braverman, Intentionally, kind of came out and and you know spewed all this rhetoric because she wanted to get sacked so that she could like oppose the leadership. Which well,
0: it is interesting, isn't it? Because um, she then wrote that letter. Yeah. yeah. Again, this is all hypothetical we're not saying it's true this is people's kind of assumptions however obviously we've seen that massive letter that she's written where she is not happy with rishi at all
2: oh my (laughs) god i'm sorry you know what when i was reading that letter can we just say like and this is why i say like this woman was literally insane so she wrote this letter um and she basically a large part of it was kind of showing her uh, disappointment in the fact that rishi sunak didn't want to disavow internationally ratified human rights laws so that they could go ahead with the Rwanda scheme. Like she's she's saying to him, you failed as a leader because you didn't disavow human rights laws. Like, is that not insane? I was literally reading that and I thought, how, where does she get the goal from to put that on paper? It's crazy. How can she say we should have ignored human rights laws? I mean, I
0: think this is why, regardless of who her replacement is a lot of us are in our own opinion happy to see her out of that position because i mean i thought when Pretty patel was in that position that it was a scary time yeah. but with suella it just seemed like she was even more of like a loose cannon in that respect
2: she absolutely was because she'll just be saying anything it's also like it's a completely dangerous precedent to set but i really do think it has something to do with what we've seen come from israel over the past month where they have just blatantly disregarded and denigrated and disavowed these you know human rights laws um and i think kind of one impact of that that a lot of people have been theorizing on is how will that now affect um the upholding of international laws you know across the global stage if one country has been able to disavow them with such impunity it basically just shows that it, it's a farce you know like and and there's there's just no punishment there's nothing there's no consequence and I think for Israel to have done that, got away with it, it now emboldens other countries to just kind of go against and, as I say, disavow other international laws, and 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 we and we re- and we see it where Suella is literally writing a letter for all of the public to see to say we should have ignored human rights laws.
0: I mean, obviously that's another semi-positive thing in that this morning on Wednesday the fifteenth of November we found out that the Rwanda.
2: Yes. plans have been
0: deemed unlawful, unlawful by the supreme court however i've seen as well rishi sunak's come back from that and said that he is enacting emergency legislation to allow it to still go forward i don't really understand like what's the point if the supreme court literally, is gonna, like, literally literally down. like
2: i think what we've seen over the past month is really the absolute kind of sham of like politics and of law and order and and everything that we've spoken about whether it's kind of israel enacting a genocide with impunity whether it's Suela braverman urging the prime minister to disavow human rights laws whether it's the met police deciding on arbitrary basis what isn't isn't a hate crime whether it's rishi sunak now creating legislation to overturn a judgment of the supreme court like really can we say that any of our laws and have any integrity like can we actually how are we expected to be law-abiding citizens when our lawmakers are acting with such kind of like arbitrary impulses
0: yeah it's just a pick and choose situation isn't it like if you're if you're in high enough a position you can basically do what you want that's what it seems like i would say oh next year or the year after election can't come soon enough but obviously i think it's like to be any better personally i think uh, Starmer lost a lot of the muslim vote um, certainly mine like like before this but i think today especially if there wasn't already a nail in the coffin this will have been a literally asking shadow cabinet ministers to resign or firing them or whatever it is
2: everything that we're seeing in, in the political world whether it's globally or nationally is it's a farcical spectacle of, of what should be kind of righteous laws
0: maintaining on the positive vibes i know we've wanted to talk for a while now but we haven't necessarily had the time each episode just in general about hate crimes particularly that have been mm. occurring in light of the ongoing violence in palestine Especially interesting given our recent conversation like a couple of minutes ago about what does and doesn't constitute a hate crime. What we can guarantee is that we've seen a massive influx of hate crimes not only against Muslim and Jewish people, across the world but Sikhs as well 68 Jasmine Singh was beaten to death in New York he was repeatedly called a turban man and punched to the ground in a brutal attack through rage inflamed by hate he was simply driving his wife from the doctors when he was stopped in his car then just a week after a Sikh man was attacked again in New York three men assaulted Luckfor Singh whilst he was stopped in traffic in Manhattan in it's Uber, telling him to go back to your country. and What's especially said about this is this is very much similar to the type of thing that we saw back in 2001, mm. um, in the aftermath of 9-11, and now obviously it was Al-Qaeda that carried out the um, terrorist attacks in America at that time. <clears throat> Al-Qaeda, obviously an Islamist um, terrorist organisation, and therefore... In the aftermath of that, we saw a rise in Islamophobia. However, due to the widespread ignorance of the West, a lot of Sikh people—I know this—the thing is, like, it's—it's it's so <laughs> bad that it's laughable. A lot of Sikh people saw themselves also fall victim to this in the first month after the 9-11 attacks the sikh coalition documented over 300 cases of violence and discrimination against sikh americans throughout the united states i believe one of them was even in the 24 hours following nine um, eleven. i think a sikh man lost his life because he was killed in the aftermath of
2: oh my god what happened. there's so much to like unpack just in that phenomenon right it is absolutely a phenomenon 300 in a month all the way back in in 2001 and like t- 22 yeah. years later um we're kind of seeing a resurgence of this kind of behavior and as i say it's interesting for a number of reasons firstly i think it's such a like it's such a sharp insight into the ignorance of like hate the fact that like they cannot even differentiate between a Muslim person and a Sikh person because obviously Islam is racialized and they kind of tend to attribute Islam to kind of um, like more ethnic people so the kind of ignorance of someone who who is Islamophobic is just crazy to me and it's also interesting how non-Muslims therefore become victims of islamophobia and i think it's a comment on like how formidable islamophobia actually is um at the time in america and we've spoken about this on the show with regards to the palestinian kind of genocide where um islamophobia was kind of the biggest tool in the west's arsenal when they were waging their war in the middle east their war on terror they necessitated islamophobia it was manufactured consent so they needed people to be afraid of muslims and islam so that they would have this kind of you know public mandate to now go and do what they did in the middle east and it is so formidable that it now permeates kind of even the government's own parameters of necessary islamophobia right they needed just enough to manufacture consent to go and do what they did in the middle east but it has taken such a hold on the west and western imaginations that it's now permeated those parameters and it's impacted people who can be racialized in a certain way that puts them in proximity to islam even when they belong to completely different religions i mean it's a tragedy really like beaten to death is horrible it's a kind of an, an older man man as well like i can hazard Mm. he was probably quite defenseless
0: it's sad as well because when it comes to times of increased racialized violence i know for example in light of the 2017 manchester arena attack a number of muslim men throughout the country shave their beards just because they're like i don't I, i don't want to kind of give any kind of Um, i
2: don't want to be racialized as a muslim i want
0: to do whatever i can to not be seen in that way and like fall into any kind of unnecessary violence
2: you know i I went to america last year like less than a year ago i was in america last year and uh, my sisters went as well but we went at different times and one of my sisters who's a hijabi she went by herself like a week after the rest of us went and my other sister told her like take your hijab off like she actually told her take your hijab off, and she did she did it because like so when we're talking about this it's not rhetoric it's not theorization it's not hypothetical like my sister literally had to fly you know she had to do that whole journey and and kind of go through immigration in the, in the united states having taken her hijab off so to decrease her risk of facing islamophobia yeah you i know? think
0: this is the thing like it's already bad and shouldn't be happening that people shouldn't have to like shave their beards or change their appearance in order to not be racialized. But when it comes to similar to obviously what happened with your sister and taking a hijab off, but also with Sikh men, obviously I think this is why we see that they are subject to so much violence, especially that is intended against people of the Islamic faith is because that's a very obvious thing and turban on the head that's foreign to me. Yeah, i can spot that a mile away i'm gonna go it's like if that. you're
2: visibly if yeah. you visibly belong, you know whether you have a turban whether you have um a, a hijab whether you have a was it for, for for jewish people i think it's kippur kippur oh kippur so chupa is the thing that they marry under the kippur for the jewish people like whatever kind of makes you visibly part of a group that is kind of you know oppressed and and discriminated against it puts you at risk which just should not be the case and you know what like Sikh people are like they're good people as well you know like I'll tell you as a Muslim Sikh people are so good to Muslims like especially in the western world like they're not always riding for us I've seen so many examples of like a Sikh person um, literally in the middle of like an Islamophobic attack and they won't say I'm not Muslim they won't say it even though they can they don't say it you know so like in my experience, like Sikh people are good people. Not that the kind of hate crime is justified against anyone, yeah. but like they're really just good people. You know, they just mind their business. Like they're very sweet and they always stand up to injustice. I've, I've noticed that as well. Yeah. Like just leave them alone, man.
0: Is it every time they go to the Gurdwara, they're opening up their. Um, it's a place very, of they're a very. People, they are a, they? a
2: great demographic. They're a great community. It's a beautiful faith.
0: Right. Rounding off today is very positive episode obviously we focused a lot on what's going on in palestine over the past month and a bit the whole world has obviously kind of turned its eyes to israel palestine and been looking at what's going on With that, I've had a lot of people that have also said, hang on, there's other stuff going on in other parts of the world that deserves similar amounts of attention. We've even had people commenting on TikTok um, saying to us, when are you going to talk about um, what's going on in Congo, what's going on in Sudan? And whilst obviously I don't think we're by any means as knowledgeable in this area, it's obviously our duty to become knowledgeable in this area and stand up for what's right. With that being said... We're just going to briefly go through our understanding of what's going on in both the Democratic Republic of Congo and Sudan.
2: Or Uh, rather, why actually all three instances, along with every other instance of like kind of mass oppression and and any instance of genocide, they're all interconnected.
0: mm -hmm. So, starting off with the Democratic Republic of Congo.
2: Okay so basically um, there's a little bit of historical context of what's going on in Congo right now where well it really started kind of um, almost three decades ago the year that I was born um, where it was the first Congo war and it was at the time of the Rwandan genocide um, where it was the kind of the Hutus that were largely persecuting the minority Tutsi group um, and during this genocide, um, a number, I think it was like two million Hutus basically crossed over the border into Congo and were housed there. And eventually, when um, the kind of the Rwandan genocide came to an end and there was a Tutsi led government, um, they kind of saw the Hutus who had left during the time of the genocide into Congo as an ongoing threat. They accused those Hutu populations of forming um, like military like extra extra military groups basically from what i understand they then had the power to install who was the congolese president of the time but as a result of this it caused kind of a lot of political back and forth Um, so it's a number of uh, rwandan groups whether it was the hutu militias that were now on the congolese side of the border or whether it was the tutsi-led government from rwanda that had kind of inadvertently now gotten control of congolese politics basically um now the second front of this which carlos will talk more about is the fact that congo is home to the largest reserve of is it cobalt
0: cobalt is the main it's also um copper and gold the large producers of as well but cobalt is the main one
2: Yeah. yeah and it's basically this militant group called m23 who are basically manning these reserves.
0: In short, Congo is home to the world's biggest reserve of cobalt, which is used for electronic devices, batteries, aerospace alloys, etc. Like I said, Congo is also um, a top producer of copper and gold. Some of the main uses for these are electrical wiring and jewellery, respectively. The West, namely USA, UK, France, etc., are basically enabling both Uganda and Rwanda to invade Congo where all of these resources are by giving them financial aid.
2: Under the M23 militia groups. Yeah,
0: and um, what the M23 groups are committing in terms of crime is homes are being destroyed, civilians are being killed, 48 women are raped every hour. Um, I think in order to come up with a statistic like that, it's mad because it actually kind of implies that it's probably worse than that. Yeah. If that's all that you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Um, millions have been displaced um, and six million have been killed, half of whom are children. Now, cobalt is um, one of the Congo's largest exports totaling around $4.4 billion, um, yet the average annual income is only $449. So obviously there's a lot of money going out there, but not necessarily a lot of money coming in and being distributed appropriately. Some examples of Western companies that are complicit in what's going on here. Um, There's a Swiss company, Glencore, who have been accused of exploiting child labour in cobalt mines, exploiting weak regulations and impoverished conditions to benefit from cheap labor, these conditions include exposure to cobalt, which is toxic, and then also having inadequate tools like these, like rubbish pickaxes, when they really need like a lot more adept machinery in order to be doing what they're doing. Another um, example of a company is Freeport McMoRan. Um, I think that's from the US. They're responsible for alleged environmental degradation and human rights abuse during this mineral extraction, like I said before. Now, obviously, Halim has talked about the past three decades um, and how all this is kind of like wound up now. But this idea of the West benefiting and exploiting Congo is definitely not a new concept. Mm. Most notoriously, the um, reign of the Belgian King Leopold II, who actually was only in charge from, I think, the late 1800s to early 1900s. So that's not even that long ago. That's like 100 years yeah. ago. He was known for the extreme exploitation and brutality in the Congo, um, imposing a resume of terror with frequent mass killings and mutilations leading to the deaths of over 13 million people.
2: That was a genocide, by the way, guys. In under, case you didn't under <laughs> under King Leopold's reign, like it was a genocide, and it was like I always, always I had this conversation with so many of my friends where I, where I say like in my top trumps of like top villains of all time, King Leopold is easily like top five. It's interesting, as easily well
0: because when we talk about colonialism, we obviously refer to the OGS. Great Britain and everything, but like Belgium, for people who maybe aren't necessarily as knowledgeable, kind of gets let off lightly. They
2: get let off so lightly. Oh my God, Leopold is like, if anyone actually knows anything about him, like I don't know how to explain to you guys like how uniquely. Sed- that man was we're talking about like okay firstly the figure of 13 million if you're listening at home like I really implore you if you're listening on Spotify like I really implore you let you pause for a second and just try to actually envision what 13 million people might look like but his sadism did not stop there he would literally mutilate and uh, there's an image um from the king leopold's reign in congo where a father is stood by uh the severed limb of he's like sat down and it's like the severed limb of his daughter that's like next to him they were putting congolese people in cages like when i tell you it is uniquely harrowing kind of what the Belgian reign did in the Congo there's been no kind of significant no no important um confrontation of this in Belgian history or, or in any kind of global political rhetoric as Carla said most people just kind of tend to gloss over it you know they they really committed some of the worst atrocities that history have ever seen and just completely got away with it all that to say Congo has really suffered at the hands of the west to even talk about Kind of so where we are at right now, where the M twenty three and and various of the militia groups basically have, um, you know, uh, extra ju- judicial control of Congo's mines and its populations, and are basically terrorizing the Congolese people. Those things are only allowed to happen when there's a power vacuum. Right, when there's political instability, those things are allowed to take place. That kind of corruption, that kind of tyranny is allowed to take place when a a a, a country and a people are left in political instability. And political instability is bred through colonial power these colonial powers come they enact their kind of system their apparatus of colonialism and then they leave and and we've seen it time and time again across all colonies across the world where the ex-colonies are not left with kind of an adequately set up administration you know the transition from colony to ex-colony the kind of the decolonial period is not uh, done properly by the the ex-colonial masters and actually it's done intentionally Mm -hmm. the ex-colonial masters intentionally leave these places in political instability so that they find it a lot more difficult to kind of progress and stand on their own two feet and therefore they never really pose you know the the threat to the colonial masters that they should
0: and then even when these previously colonized countries do try to get on solid ground on the right footing etc colonial powers will even weave back in and destabilize things again in the congo the first democratically elected president was in 1960 was patrice lumumba he actually made a pledge saying that the country's resources would be used for the benefit of its inhabitants And essentially, within six months, he was assassinated and replaced with a dictator through also Western intervention. We see this all
2: the time. The same with Thomas Sankara in Burkina Faso, where he was doing amazing things for his people and his country, and of course, he was assassinated. You know, like it's it's no mystery. You know. really that the west does not want these countries to strive especially when they are as as resource rich as they are because then really um they will have kind of some way of having exerting some kind of authority over themselves and potentially western trades and therefore western governments which to the West is a nightmare situation that they just will never allow to happen. And that's why as Carlos was saying, the militia groups, especially M23 are supported by, you know, the the West. And um, it's no surprise that the West are the ones kind of really benefiting the most from Congo's resources.
0: So in terms of what people can do in order to help, I think the main thing is just making sure that you're aware of what's going on and, maybe putting pressure on the people in charge to actually put pressure on our government to take what's going on seriously because ultimately we as a big Western power have a big part to play here. Anyone out there who's got an iPhone, cobalt is one of the main like
1: mm.
0: things used to make it function. <clears throat> so we're all benefiting from this genocide. It can be quite easy to kind of separate yourself from it and Think it's not my problem, but ultimately, when you like, you're probably listening to this on the phone or you're on your phone right now, like that's come from this system. So, I think it's
2: really important to be aware like the hand that we, the role that we play as well, like as consumers, obviously. We don't have like the executive control, but when we find ourselves in situations where we're kind of like obliged by a, a certain social contract to kind of necessitate the conditions in which everyday necessities like our phones are made, uh, we need to be otherwise very, very aware of those conditions and, and kind of, the, as I say, the hand that we're contributing and do what we can to reverse that damage. So uh, as Carlos was saying, I know that there kind of a lot of people are starting to kind of wake up and see what's going on in congo the same way that we're writing to our mps we also about palestine we also need to be writing about congo and also about sudan which we will speak about
0: yeah i mean just before we go into sudan like what's your thought as well because obviously before today's vote on the ceasefire in palestine i wrote to my mp which i i Kind of did quite a bit like three years ago when there was a surge in petitions and the like um, particularly because of the Black Lives Matter movement I was very much like okay this is something I actually do to get change made and every time I was kind of met with the same mundane reply back to it and I did send my letter this time because I was like this is something that I really really care about and I really like want to push for this but at the same time I very much doubt that it, it was taken seriously so I know we're advocating for people to still email their MPs, but how do we continue to do that when sometimes, depending on where your MP is sitting in terms of the political spectrum, they might just not take any notice of you?
2: I think at the end of the day, all we can do is what we can do. We have to start from where we are. And I think 100% continue to email, continue to sign petitions, continue to send kind of letters and whatever. But I've also seen, and I've seen examples in America where people are directly confronting their. Uh, what do they call it in America? Senator. Their senator, yeah. that where they're like directly confronting their senator, and I think that's really a good idea yeah, in this like country. Yeah, like sort of
0: one where it just happened, this is the thing, I don't think it really happens in this country that you see them that much in public, yeah. but then what happened in America was this guy was on like the same train as one, just happened to be sat opposite them, and he just got out his phone, and just started like questioning it, like why do you back this, blah, 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 and he did end up getting chucked off the train,
2: but... Or like I've seen one where they kind of a Palestinian woman found her senator at dinner and she just chose to confront her. And I think for those of us who who kind of, um, you know, are are willing to take a bit of the risk, which I think we we should be given the privilege that we have. Obviously, if you're not actually kind of um, being harmful or hurtful or whatever, I think direct confrontation is a very, very effective tool because um, where in email they can kind of give a pre-written automated email response. Back with a very politician's answer. Direct confrontation will force them to really listen to what you have to say and really consider what you have to say. So, and,
0: and if not, then it shows to the world like that's their just true that's colours, who they are. That's yeah. mean um, what you just referred to, I saw that as well, and I think it was um, Elizabeth Warren that they actually bumped into in um, eating dinner. And they were literally obviously questioning them about the situation in Palestine. And I think it was either Elizabeth or the person she was with said, now is not really the time for that. And I was like, well, when is, when the, is time the time for it? This? Exactly, <laughs> when is the
2: time for it? Exactly, like if you were doing your job and you were adequately supporting your constituents and reflecting their consensus, you would not need to be accosted. You know, like ultimately it's that's your responsibility and it's entirely our prerogative to have direct confrontation where we feel like the people who are supposed to be representing us in parliament are just not doing their job um so whether it's kind of scheduling a face-to-face meeting with your local MP because I know that's also an option whether it's kind of waiting outside of their office to try and kind of have a word with them or anything you can do that obviously isn't harmful Um, I think that's
0: the thing don't be harmful but also don't let MPs and again, in case this gets taken out of context, I'm not advocating for anyone to do anything harmful or anything <laughs> illegal. But I do think that MPs have maybe become a bit too comfortable. One hundred percent, they don't because they don't
2: because they can make they, there's such a disconnect between kind of the the political class and the every and the kind of the everyday working class people, um, where they have become very comfortable with not having to answer for themselves yeah and therefore they become comfortable making decisions that don't act in the best interest of their constituents and we see that time and time again so i think honestly direct confrontation is 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 a pretty effective kind of way of, of demanding yeah. accountability from your politicians
0: yeah not physical by any means purely <laughs> with words but let them see you are a real person you're a real constituent and you want change and if they're not giving it to you then they need to Hear it from the horse's mouth, yeah. basically. Right to finish with today, we're going to be talking about what's going on in Sudan. Again, just reiterating that we're by no means experts, but this is what we've learned, and we encourage you to go out and do the same. I think the kind of instability in Sudan kind of begins. At the beginning of the 1990s, in 1989, Omar al-Bashir seized control of the government in a coup. Bashir's junta has orchestrated systematic campaigns of destruction against all who have stood in their way since, even after he was actually overthrown by his own military in 2019. Following this in 2019, a transitional government was formed, but the generals staged a coup against civilian leaders in 2021. Protests have remained ongoing ever since. Most recently, in April 2023, so earlier this year, war broke out between the Sudanese Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces, which are rival factions of the military government of Sudan as of the 24th of october 2023 over 4 million have been internally displaced and more than 1.3 million others have fled the country as refugees also many civilians in Darfur. ...have been reported dead as part of an ongoing genocide there as well. Bashir's regime has long resisted the will of the Sudanese people through a dark network of corrupt business dealings, aggressive security forces, malign international actors and nefarious activities that threaten global security... Some examples of this include genocide and war crimes, so ethnic African tribal minorities have been murdered, raped and uprooted by Sudan's security forces because of their beliefs, skin colour and so that natural resources in in their areas can be pillaged. Um, We've seen violent kleptocracy, Um, so the lucrative oil, gold and small arms sectors are tied directly to the immense wealth of generals and their war crimes. Junta Paramilitaries seize private land and loot civilian property as part of their paychecks. Meanwhile, public services have dwindled and ordinary people are murdered in poverty. Um, we've also seen an oppression of civil society. Um, resume security forces openly attack peaceful activists and journalists speaking truth to power many of those who are arrested are imprisoned or brought to dreaded ghost houses uh, these are named as such um, because military leaders tried to keep them secret um allegedly security forces torture rape and execute unarmed citizens here before then tossing the ones that are still alive back onto the street to fend for themselves As I mentioned before as well, there's also malign global actors. So the regime receives financial and military support from several oppressive governments in exchange for access to Sudan's natural resources and mercenaries. Um, Some of these include Russia, Libya, and Saudi Arabia. Over the years, regime leaders have provided financing, weapons, and safe haven to members of terrorist organizations such as Al-Qaeda and the Lord's Resistance Army terrorist organizations are also part of the military junta itself most notable is the rapid support forces the rsf which if you noted i mentioned before as being part of the main two opposing sides of the ongoing war currently so the rsf is a paramilitary group that commits war crimes and other human rights abuses daily they've been loaned out as mercenaries in libya and yemen with profits flowing back to the generals um final couple of things in regards to what's been going on in sudan as well there's we've also seen religious persecution so moderate muslims as opposed to um orthodox um then also christians animists um etc um and also their places of worship um have suffered persecution um and also in regards to animals as well um the Sudanese um regime currently um their key players in the um, illegal elephant poaching. So lots of stuff going on there that's not great at all. But like I said, obviously the main influx of attention has gone towards this most recently because of the war that started in April between the Sudanese armed forces and the... Um, RSF the Rapid Support Forces.
2: Um, it is a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Like one of my cousins, her uh, one of her best friends is Sudanese, and she like studied. She's from the UK. I think she went back and studied in Sudan, and then she had to leave actually when um, the the coup in what yeah. happened in, 2019?
0: Was it so in coup? 2019 so in 2019 there was a coup and yeah. Bashir was basically Ungrown. ousted by his own yeah. military
2: my cousin's best friend actually like Sudanese and basically her mum when she was her age was protesting um for like a free Sudan and now her daughter you know like 30 odd years later um is also on the streets protesting for a free Sudan um the kind of um persistence of 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 this issue um has really really uh made life hell for so many Sudanese people um and it is again when when we spoke about what's happened in the Congo when we spoke about what's happened in Palestine well Congo to be honest it, it, oh my god so when we spoke about what happened in Congo we spoke about how Um, the decolonial period creates uh, power vacuums basically and it's a very and it's a very similar thing to what's happened here where it's not enough to just point to the political instability but you have to really look at the, um, the genealogy of that instability and really where did that come from Um, And as we were saying, it is a very common factor of the decolonial period where Western powers um, intentionally leave a country in disarray and that leads to, you know, factions and infighting. And and really, that's what we see here. Do Um, we know
0: who previously colonized Sudan?
2: The Brits did. Was it? I'm pretty sure the Brits did. Hang on.
0: Just curious as to who it was and how long ago it ended because obviously when i started the history then i was talking about from 1989 but even when i was saying that i was very much aware that
2: yeah they can't
0: really start the story there
2: yeah it was the uk and egypt as well in some parts 1899 to 1950 so 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 sudan only got really really got um uh the independence in 1956 right um but yeah it's it's a very um typical story of colonialism and what happens in the aftermath of colonialism and why so many countries across the kind of ex-colonial world are in political instability and political value vacuums that then lead to this kind of power grabbing and we've seen in the instance of sudan where there's so many different allies there's russia are involved and saudi arabia are involved and the us are involved and they're backing various kind of uh, players in this and it it kind of really makes you think about um what's the gain here and and kind of the the proxy wars that might be at play here when there are this many uh, uh players involved on various sides but ultimately our concern is and always will be with the Sudanese people on the ground who are facing this um kind of turmoil every single day the dis- the level of displacement that we've seen in Sudan is cr- is insane what was the figure
0: million internally displaced and more than 1.3 million others have fled the country as refugees as of October 2023.
2: That's crazy. Like that level level of displacement. Um, And we spoke about when we spoke about we, we spoke about i can't even talk anymore bro we need to wrap this up <laughs> we spoke about it in the palestinian episode when we talk about this idea of displacement actually what we're talking about is people who have lost their homes forever who have lost their livelihoods for, forever they're now they don't belong to anywhere you know that internal displacement they don't have these people there's millions of people that currently do not have a home Like we cannot imagine what life must be like for like how could you what kind of life is that you don't have a home You know, you're refugees, you're living in a refugee camp, you have nothing to your name, you know? So our solidarity is always with the Sudanese people on the ground. I
0: think as well, like, just when you were saying that, now I was thinking about... um what it means as well to obviously not have a home, and I've realised as well. Say, for example, if you had a house fire or something, God forbid, yeah. um, you'd probably go and save your friends or family. But you realise that a lot of these people, also their friends and family, also will be in the same situation. So it really is they're I mean, refugees no and refu- where Yeah,
2: they're refugees in refugee camps, and that's all they have. They don't have any. They don't. They they literally don't have anything else. Yeah. You know, that's their reality. That's their everyday life, um, yeah. which is of course tragic.
0: Yeah, so again, I'm not sure as to what can be done exactly in regards to aiding the Sudanese people, but I think educating yourself on what's going on is a great place to start, um, and I think there are maybe a number of humanitarian charities that are working on the ground yeah, now to actually sure. help the Sudanese people, so probably go and check. Them out, you know. It's been a long day when helena says that she's can't talk anymore.
2: I'm sorry, guys. It's it's literally ten, nearly eleven p.m. Yeah, it's time to. This wrap has been a very up. chaotic day of filming. Like We're a yeah, lot of stopping and starting, a lot of back and forth. a lot of
0: dogs interrupting the episode. My my concentration has gone. Right, well, Well, thank you everyone for tuning in. Make sure that you tune in next week. It'll be us three live in the studio, so that'll be fun. Um, But, yeah, hopefully more positive vibes next week. Bye, guys. Bye.